Good evening and welcome this to Navara Live. To Navara I'm your host, Ash Sarka, and with me tonight is the original Magic Mike, Mike Bancole. Mike, how are you doing? I'm great. It's, it's good to be introduced as the original Mike. I'm coming for your throne, Michael Walker, so, so watch out. Well, look, I actually called you the original Magic Mike, so there may be a you know complaint being put in, some trade standards agreement being breached because everyone's got their tops on. Sorry about that. It's a family show. Um, coming up on tonight's family show, the Home Office are preparing yet another awful way to treat migrants. Fossil fuel companies are paying influencers to launder their reputation. And aliens, not that they're paying aliens, will be talking about aliens and the wild claims coming out of a certain congressional hearing in the US. So stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. London Mayor Sadiq Khan has won a high court battle brought against his expanded EULA scheme. Five Conservative councils took the mayor to court, arguing that enlarging the ultra-low emission zone from inner London to greater London was either unlawful or not within the mayor's power. They also raised concerns over the mayor's scrappage scheme. That's a range of grants that certain people and organisations can get for taking vehicles that don't meet the new emission standards off the road. The judge dismissed all three of those concerns, and the ruling clears the way for the expansion to go ahead at the end of August. This was Sadiq Khan speaking to the press after the ruling. So the result today went your way, but do you accept that ULEZ expansion has come at a deep political cost to you? Well, this, this landmark decision today is good news for London, because it means from the end of August we can make greater progress in cleaning up the air in outer uh, London. The decision to expand ULES uh, was a difficult one for me to take. Uh, it wasn't taken lightly, but it's essential we make more progress cleaning up the air in our city. We know every year in our city, there's around 4,000 premature deaths directly linked with air pollution, children with stunted lungs forever, and adults with a whole host of health issues from asthma to cancer, dementia to heart disease. But I have been listening I'll carry on listening from next week. We're massively expanding those eligible for financial support. Almost one million families from next week who receive child benefit will receive and be eligible for support. Every small business from next week will be eligible for support and every charity for additional uh, support. But I'll carry on listening and responding to any concerns Londoners may have. Once the ULES expansion kicks in, anyone using a vehicle that doesn't meet the requirements will be charged £12.50 a day to drive on London's roads. Campaigners have argued that it's necessary to protect the health of Londoners. And according to a 2019 Imperial College study, around 4,000 deaths that year were attributable to air pollution. And while outer London boroughs have historically less air pollution than inner London ones, the impact on mortality there is worse. That's because the populations in the outer London boroughs tend to be older. But for some, the ULES expansion isn't about the health, it's all about the cash. Tory mayoral candidate Susan Hall said this to the BBC after the ruling. Well, I'm very disappointed because Londoners do not need the um, ULES expansion. It's going to affect businesses, it's going to affect charities, and in most of all, it's going to affect hardworking Londoners who are saying loud and clear to Sadiq Khan, don't do it. What's the offset, cost of living crisis versus keeping people's lungs safe? No, what do you no, say no, about no, that? No, it's not about lung safe. His own impact assessment itself said it would not make any difference. So this is nothing but a cash grab. It's £200 million a year. They reckon they'll make off the back of this. This is off the back of hard-working Londoners. It's not good enough. 
The facts, when it comes to health, do seem to be on Kahn's side. Designed by Boris Johnson but enacted by Kahn, the inner London ULES was introduced in 2019. Since then, levels of toxic nitrogen dioxide have dropped by 26%, and fine particulate matter, basically the microscopic particles that clog up your lungs, have fallen by 19%. But there's no denying that the expanded scheme is going to have a huge impact on ordinary Londoners. It's estimated that one in six cars in outer London won't meet the new standards. That's around 280,000 cars that will be liable for the charge, as one caller into LBC made clear to Labour MP David Lammy. To be honest with you, uh, I've had my wife in tears on the phone now. Um, This has done us. It's finished. Um, We have about 150 to 200 pounds a month to spare. Some months on a good month, that's now going to go on a tax. Um, I really weren't going to vote anymore because obviously the Tories and how much they lie, I always used to vote Tory, I weren't going to vote for anyone. I was actually going to give Mr Starmer a go. With the support backing the mayor, he uh, lost my vote immediately. I urge everyone to vote Tory now to really give you a taste of your own medicine. That's how livid I am this morning. This is now the final now in the coffin, especially for me and my, my family anyway. Um... Yeah, it's, it's, it's upset me, to be honest with you. And John, how old is your really car? What's the car you've got? It's about 11 years old. 11 years old, family runabout, a Mitsubishi, nothing special, nothing flash. And now I'm being told by a mayor that it's no good. All right, well, there's You've two... now imposed a tax there's a on, cu- I would say, hundreds cu- of thousands of people. There's a, couple of, just... there's a couple of things here, John. One, you've said that you're living, you're experiencing the cost of living crisis. It's tough. You've got two two young kids. Well, the cost of living crisis that's that, that you're experiencing, isn't that down to the government that you say that you're prepared to vote for? That's how angry I am with your mouth. Because that's how of, livid I am. Because, so you've got, you've got the ULES charge. You've got kids yep. who you don't want to have asthma, presumably. Now that's, You that's, don't want to get ill. Now, I'm not being funny. Even with the poor young girl that passed away, I really feel real bad for their family. But are you telling me that she's walking around in the streets of London and people are dropping down dead? People have got very, very bad immune systems as well, David. You've got to admit this. Come on now. Hang on. This has finished us. Labour is supposed to be the party that supports the working person. Of course. It is not. It has now squeezed us. Of course. Squeezed us big time. Sadiq says he's listening, and he's got to be listening. He's got a scrappage scheme. Have you checked that you do not yep, qualify not, for anything I'm, I'm, in the I'm scrappage not eligible. scheme? I'm not eligible. Um, a 2,000 scrappage scheme for a vehicle that's worth five and a half to six thousand pounds. So there's another four grand hit that I'll have to take, David. I'm not sure Lammy handled that so well. A point he could have made is that the scrappage scheme actually isn't that good. And that's because, unlike in Bristol and Birmingham, the Tory government hasn't put a single penny behind it. The explanation for that might be that stoking anger over the ULES expansion has been a long-running Tory strategy, and is part of wider anger amongst Tory MPs over net-zero pledges on the climate. The Tories claimed last week's narrow by-election win in Uxbridge as a referendum on green policies, policies that affect everyone. And unfortunately, Labour seems to have fallen into the trap. This was Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper speaking to Sky News before the court's judgment was announced. 
We'd write Keir Starmer has asked um, the Mayor of London to to look at this again, to to rethink. Uh, We know that there's an issue about the cost of living crisis affecting people right across the country. And that was an issue that came up as part of the Oxbridge by-election. And so that's why uh, Keir Starmer has uh, asked the Mayor of London to rethink on this. I think, look, the, the broader approach that we need to take to all of these environmental issues is to do whatever we can to both improve the environment and help people with the cost of living at the same time. And that's what Labour's uh, clean energy plans are designed to do, because that is about cutting energy bills. And it's also about making sure that we can uh, reach the the net zero target as well. Link those two things together. So what does this mean for these schemes that penalise polluting cars? Do you want them or, or don't you want them? Well, there's different approaches you can take to scrappage schemes, for example, and the government, as I understand it, has given more support for scrappage schemes in other parts of the country so that you help people with the cost of living at the same time as pursuing environmental objectives. So we need to see that kind of recognition from the government. And those are the sorts of issues that uh, I think Keir Sama has asked should be looked at as part of this. So now we're supposed to trade off the future of the planet against the economic costs of implementing policies that might help save it. But while politicians are turning climate policies into a political football, the evidence is clear that there's a consensus amongst voters that things need to change fast. I want to show you some graphs from the FT's chief data reporter, John Byrne Murdoch, because they show just how much more supportive Brits are of green policies than their peers in other countries. Let's start with support for a ban on petrol and diesel cars after 2030. The UK is the top bar. And while Conservatives are less supportive than Labour, the consensus converges on support for a ban. Compare that to Germany, the green bar, a big car-making country where no one supports it. It's a similar case in France, the light blue bar, while the US, the darker blue bar, is, surprise, surprise, just much more polarised. What about attacks on flights linked to how frequently people fly? Again, the UK comes out well in front with broad support from all political sides. Germany and France are a little more on the fence, but tending towards supportive. Meanwhile, the US just isn't into it, though it's a big country with a lot of internal flying. But this next graph is the one that really shows the UK wants the government to spend more, not less, on a green transition. Tripling government investment in renewables is hugely popular amongst Brits, no matter what your politics. In France, it's not a very popular idea, while in Germany and the US, there's reasonable support on average, but also a lot of division along party lines. And this may come as a surprise, but Bern Murdoch also points out that 30% of Tory voters say that if Sunak waters down net zero targets, it would put them off voting for the party in the next election. Surely these are exactly the voters that Starmer has been trying to attract. So why dance to the Tories' tune on climate? Mike, doesn't it seem kind of weird that there's a race to the bottom on net zero, despite the public really wanting to keep it? It does feel really, really weird. And I feel like with Starman with Labour, they should be seizing these moments to change the narrative on, on climate, the, the conservative narrative on climate, which is like, we don't want to inconvenience people too much. We're just going to do the bare minimum. Or actually, I think Labour underestimate the procedural part of our democracy and how 
in the lead up to an election, it isn't just about doing what you think is going to win you the election, but it's also fundamentally the idea of, you know, changing minds and also winning over those minds who are on your side of the agenda. Unfortunately, Labour seems to have emphasised some dissenting voices who seem to think you lessened kind of green policies are a bad thing, and ignoring the, the overwhelming majority of those people who actually think net zero and, and, you know, a green economy is the future and it's something we should all be pursuing. So I feel like this is another case of, you know, both Labour and Conservatives completely misreading the room. I mean, I saw an intervention from Tony Blair earlier on this, and it's just like all of these politicians just seem to be missing the, mis- misreading the room. You know, voters want us to focus on net zero. Voters want us to transition to a green economy. And I think the message from both parties is, look, there are going to be some inconveniences, but for your children, for your grandchildren, for you, and for your long-term future, you know, policies like less and, and, and the transition to a greener economy is beneficial for all of us. Now, I've got a few more things to say about climate change and the state of our politics in Britain. First of all, the ULES isn't perfect. But when 60% of London's car journeys are made by solo drivers, that means no passengers, and 35% are made for trips of zero to two kilometres, don't tell me there's nothing to cut down on here. It matters to everyone that even the mildest changes to try and deal with air pollution and carbon emissions is met with this kind of hooting and hollering, especially because it comes dressed up as care for the poor. Well, look, newsflash, most deprived households in London don't own a car. And what they need is cleaner air and better public transport, not the inalienable right of middle-class SUV owners to shuttle their kids to soft play unimpeded. And okay, so you may be one of the dozens of people that I hear are rumoured to live in not London. Why is any of this important? Well, first of all, it does speak to just how dysfunctional our political media really is. Tony Blair is called upon as some kind of great thinker, and he says, Britons aren't going to pay for the transition to net zero. And look, we're about as far now from Blair's last days in office as he was from the previous Labour government. And literally nobody in the run-up to the 1997 general election was particularly worried about what James Callaghan or former Wilson ministers had to say. Why? Because they belonged to the past. And Tony Blair would have never have done anything anything that might have made him look so weak. Keir Starmer, however, doesn't mind that he's being made to look like he has no ideas or vision of his own. The other thing that's wrong with this picture is that Tony Blair is just plain wrong. I mean, sure, you can look at climate change through the lens of all the costs of adaptation and decarbonisation. It costs money to insulate homes, install heat pumps and fit solar panels. What about the costs of not doing it? Floods and extreme heat waves are pretty bloody expensive. We always look through the lens of what we're spending and not what we're getting for it. So, yeah, fewer cars on the road, but it means more clean air, more space for kids to play, fewer health problems across society as a whole. I mean, tell me, Mike, am I just being a typical metropolitan lovey in my ivory tower supporting the ULES? And you can be brutally honest with me. Absolutely not. I think you're completely right in supporting ULES, Ash. Look, I think ULES is a fundamentally good thing because, you know, air pollution is one of the biggest risks, environmental risks to human health. Air pollution affects all of our organs and it's been linked to a wide range of diseases from diabetes up to cancer. So, you know, ULES will lead to less people driving, which is the the aim, 
you know, and that's going to lead to cleaner air and that's going to be good for all of us, especially for those for maybe some marginalized communities, right? Because we know that the effects of air pollution are asymmetric. So we know that black and Asian families and communities are more likely to live in areas of high pollution. We also know that, you know, poorer people are less likely to drive and they're also the most exposed to air pollution. So actually, not only are we helping everyone, we're especially helping those in marginalized communities and those who maybe live in poorer neighborhoods. I think another thing, another really important point to make about air pollution is the pressure it places on the NHS. So we know that air pollution costs the NHS about £20 billion a year. That's a lot of money because of these diseases linked to air pollution. So actually, we'll be, we'll be less than the pressure on the NHS as well. So this is just, in every single sense, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really good thing. And I think, look, you know, some people might be inconvenienced by this, but in the long term, you know, we'll look back on this and think, wow, this was just an obvious thing to do and a really, really positive thing for all of us. I mean, I think you're right to talk about the uneven distribution of air pollution. It impacts households of colour and deprived households most. And there is also a somewhat uneven distribution when it comes to the ULEs, because if you're someone who does have a car, which probably means you're not amongst the most deprived households, but say you use your car for your job, you're a self-employed tradesman, or say you're someone who isn't on a particularly high income, it isn't something where you go, I'm going to jump for joy that I'm imposed you know, with this new charge. And I think that's where central government comes in. There has to be support for those people so that they can do both. They can transition away from the most polluting vehicles. Vehicles can come off the road, but their livelihoods are preserved. That's not Sadiq Khan's fault that that's not happening. It's central government's fault. It's Westminster's fault because they want to punish London for having a Labour mayor, effectively. And they want to do anything they can to, you know, stick in his craw. And so for me, then it comes down to, well, within the circumstances we have, do you want you, Les, or not? Imperfect as it is. And I think ultimately, I go, yeah, I do want it. It's not going to be enacted perfectly. There are people that it's going to negatively impact. And I don't think you can shy away from it. You can't shy away from that fact at all. But with the urgency of decarbonisation, the pace at which we do need to change the way we live our lives at this massive systemic level, I think... I think it's got to be done. I would rather it had been done better, but if it's this or nothing, I'll take this. Our next story. Just when you thought that the Home Office treatment of asylum seekers couldn't get more degrading, they sink to new lows. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has decided that people fleeing war and persecution don't necessarily deserve the luxuries of four walls and a ceiling, and has invested in tents to house thousands of asylum seekers. The tents will be pitched at disused military sites in anticipation of thousands of asylum seekers making the channel crossing during the summer months. They aim to accommodate up to 2,000 people. This is an image of the tents used at Manston Airfield last year. Though the new ones will have more facilities like showers and portable toilets, they'll probably look something like this. The Home Office say there's absolutely nothing wrong with housing migrants in this way. They argue that it saves them the extortionate fees that come with last-minute hotel bookings and that other countries, like Ireland, do the same thing. But let's face it, it's pretty grim. Imagine if you've come from Afghanistan or Eritrea looking for a place of safety and what you get is a tent to share with hundreds of others in a former military base. It's probably not the best thing for victims of torture or for unaccompanied minors, And there's also a different way to deal with asylum seekers. You can expand the safe and legal routes for them to get here, and you can allow them to begin their applications outside of the UK. 
I wonder why they're not doing that. The Home Office argued that their new marquees will have all the facilities needed to hold people for several weeks if necessary. But their record on health and safety at these kinds of places is absolutely awful. This is from The Times. It can also be revealed that several migrants who were moved into the former RAF site at Weathersfield in Braintree, Essex, earlier this month have been diagnosed with diseases including scabies, tuberculosis and one case of scurvy. Three of the 46 migrants who were moved into the site on July 12th have since left, with one moving to live with his aunt after complaining about the poor quality of accommodation, and two others removed after being identified as having scurvy. Last December, a 31-year-old Iraqi man being held at Manston Asylum Centre died of diphtheria. Manston saw the worst outbreak of the disease that had been seen in this country for decades. Detainees complained of unsanitary and overcrowded conditions, and some found themselves being dumped in central London without suitable clothing or accommodation. Here's what Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper had to say about the tents this morning on LBC. Looks like this is all in addition to the hotel use because the hotels are still going up uh, alongside. We've seen them really flailing around with the barges, the bases, the tents now. And actually all this is alongside increasing hotel use when they should be ending hotel use because they're simply not taking asylum decisions. They've let the backlog soar, but decisions are still 30% lower than they were four or five years ago. They've got to clear the backlog. We want to end hotel use by having proper fast track systems, particularly for safe countries like Albania and other countries, so you can have fast track and returns. I think what it appears to be showing is that even the government doesn't believe the the new law that they put forward that they said was going to stop all the dangerous crossings this summer actually isn't going to work. And instead, it's just going to increase the backlog. That's just going to cause more problems. We need grip, not gimmicks. Grip, not gimmicks. Can you see what's missing from there? Anybody? Well, it's any mention of the humanity of the asylum seekers who'll be forced to live and sleep on barges and tents that weren't designed for this kind of use. I'm sure that all the politics nerds will pipe up and tell me how all of this is actually clever politics, but to be honest, it just stinks of cowardice. So you want to oppose the government, but you don't want to look soft on asylum seekers. So then every act of cruelty, every humiliation is just a gimmick. It's not serious. But it is serious for the people who've got to live under these conditions. The problem with doing triangulation acrobatics is that you're never going to get the political cover you need in order to then treat people better when you get into power. All you're saying is that the Tories are incompetently nasty, but you're going to be sensible about it. Mike, how can Labour talk about asylum seekers without bolstering the Tories' framing or getting torn apart by the Daily Mail? I think it starts with something you touched on, remembering that these are human beings. And I think the starting point of that is actually referring to them as human beings, maybe not using terms like asylum seeker or migrants. Just remembering these are human beings and they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. And I feel like for Labour, one of the reasons they don't want to push back is because they think, you know, there are some voters who might appreciate this kind of rhetoric, maybe. And, you know, they don't want to, you know, ruffle too many feathers. But this is a really big issue, I think. And it's one of, it's one of those issues that we're going to see where, where Labour, what Labour are really made of in the coming years when it comes to this issue. Because I feel like Labour could really change the narrative on this issue. And it goes back to a point I made earlier. 
the procedural parts of our democracy where a party is able to change the narrative on an issue, you know, shift what the governments are doing and, and you know, present a progressive message. That's something Labour should be trying to do at this moment in time when it comes to migration. But Labourists are not doing that, unfortunately. It's a real shame. So I think we really need to remember that these, you know, these asylum seekers who are on these barges, they're human beings. That should be the centre of Labour's messaging, compassion. And I think Brits are far more compassionate than our politicians seem to believe they are. So if you tap into and present a compassionate message on asylum, you know, focus on the humanity of these people, not even referring to them as asylum seekers, I think that's a really positive way Labour can kind of dodge Labour, dodge the conservative framing on this, you know, maybe dodge some of the, the, the Daily Mail stuff and change the narrative. I mean, I think that you touch upon something really interesting here, which is the language which is used. Because before, it used to be that you'd hear about economic migrants, oh, no good, very bad, coming here to get something that they shouldn't. And you'd hear about so-called genuine asylum seekers. And that was the binary which was set up in a lot of the right-wing tabloids. Because then when you say, hang on, you're demonizing people who really need a safe haven, they'd go, no, 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 no. We're talking about economic migrants. We're not talking about asylum seekers. And then what has happened, because you've had this drip, drip, drip of demonization, where every time you talk about asylum seekers, you talk about benefits cheats, you talk about criminals, you talk about people who've come here wanting something for nothing. You've had the total collapse of the distinction between, oh, no good, very bad economic migrants and the asylum seeker. And so when you demonize all asylum seekers like that, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of where they've come from, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, you then totally lose the space to do anything nice for asylum seekers. All you can do is crack down after crackdown, implement one bad, humiliating policy after another, because you've efficiently made asylum seeker a synonym for criminal. And that's why I think, as Mike says, it's really important for Labour to do something different. Because when you come into power and you go, okay, we want to do things even slightly different from the Conservatives. I mean, you know, there's not a huge amount of difference between Starmer and Sunak, but I think it's safe to say that they'll want to do some things different. But you've not done anything to shift the narrative or the framing, and you repeat the exact same framing over and over and over. Where is the consent going to be? Where's the support going to be? Where's the political cover going to be? So I think that it's something which in its own right is really bad. and it's in, in its own right, it's really bad because it has this real-life impact on the lives of people who fleeing war, persecution, poverty, abuse in order to come here. But it's also really bad because it doesn't allow you to do the things that you want to do when you get into power. Let's move on to our next story. Life isn't easy for the big fossil fuel polluters. I mean, sure, you enjoy historic profits and preferential treatment from the world's governments, but it seems as though people don't like you as much as they used to. Take a look at this. It's a leaked BP document from 2020 where the oil and gas giant pondered these three questions. One, how do we demonstrate that we get it in a more meaningful, active and inclusive way that resonates with society? Two, what is meaningful empathy in a world where we're seen as one of the bad guys? And three, can you lead and change perceptions when we're seen as being part of the problem? not the future solution. We get it. It literally sounds like that bit in Succession when Shiv Roy is trying to cover up a sexual abuse scandal in her company and she's like, we get it. Um, 
hilarious beyond parody. So what do you do if you're Shell or BP and you're worried that your brand is being associated with, I don't know, murdering the planet to shore up shareholder profit? Easy. You get the influencers on board. An investigation by DSmog found that over the past six years, Shell, BP and ExxonMobil have been pouring millions of dollars into producing relatable and influencer-led content. The investigation is also published by Navara and it says this. Fossil fuel companies have deep reserves to deploy on digital advertising. While Shell last year advertised for a new staff member to manage its TikTok campaigns, oil and gas super major ExxonMobil has been the highest advertising spender on Facebook and Instagram in the last five years, shelling out $23.1 million since June 2018. The total combined following of all the influencers who have been paid for fossil fuel partnerships since 2017 in posts analyzed by DSmog is nearly $60 million. What kind of content does $60 million get you? It gets you Colin Furs shouting at his 12.5 million YouTube subscribers about all of your greenwashing efforts. Way up internet. So today I'm gonna be taking on a renewable energy project, but there is a reason why I'm doing this. Now, every year Shell run what's called their Eco Marathon. Now this is a competition for university students and clever people alike, and they set various challenges, like trying to get cars to run from London to Rome, just using a litre of fuel. But this is 2020, you ain't running no events this year, are you? <laughs> But they've not just given up, they've come up with a new event called Pitch the Future, which is where old Furs comes in, because it's an online event, and I'm hosting it. Oh my God, that guy's enthusiasm could literally kill me. Um, look, not all of Colin's fans were best pleased with his fossil fuel spawn con, however. Here's a comment from one of his followers on Facebook. What the hell, Furs? Shell is the worst company in the world, and it's not eco, never was, never be. That's putting the good face on the bad game. Furs replied with this. Hi, I know there are strong feelings on Shell and I'm not here to represent their whole business, just the eco-marathon and the teams that have entered. Today I've been hosting the pitches and there's some fantastic ideas which the teams retain the IP for. So if the competition helps bring some of these ideas and products to the market, that's a good thing. I know that there are strong feelings on Shell. Like, what a vapid response. It's not that Shell have done something controversial. They've not done a Netflix special with some potentially offensive jokes. We're talking about one of the world's biggest polluters. And I think that this exchange sort of tells you why the influencer strategy is so successful. Instead of people holding a corporation responsible, they're made to feel like if they're upset, they'd be yelling at a single likable individual. So it's a win-win. Shell gets to hide behind your persona and you get a load of oil money to update your home studio or, or whatever. As content strategies go, it appears to have been a very successful one. As World Media Group acknowledged, the success of the campaign was astounding, generating 127 million views and nearly 1 billion impressions. Essence Mediacom, boasted that Shell-branded content actually outperformed Furs' own organic content benchmarks, achieving 59% more interactions than the norm for posts on Colin's own channels. So it was a win for Shell and a win for Furs, but I guess a loss for the planet overall. That piece was published this week on navaramedia.com, and earlier today I spoke to its author Sam Bright. 
I guess when you've got that much money to throw around, you might as well spend a bit of it on PR. I think we quoted in the piece that Exxon had spent $23 million on Facebook ads over the past five years. And that sounds like a humongous amount of money to most ordinary businesses or people. But to them, that's pocket change. Part of it as well is that the climate movement has been successful in a lot of its aims in that it is generating a backlash against these companies that's been particularly accentuated during the cost of living crisis. They're panicking a bit, to be honest with you. I think that they see that the winds of change are blowing against fossil fuel giants, that um, politicians and activists are increasingly talking about the transition to sustainable fuels, and they want to make sure that they maintain those astronomical profits that they've been so used to and particularly used to over the past year or so. Do you have any sense what a YouTuber like Colin Furs could get for doing a a piece of sponsored content? Like, is it something that Navara Media should be looking into? Navara Live sponsored by Shell. So the really interesting thing about the course of this investigation was that we sort of approached a lot of these influencers a month or two ago to ask them in a very general, open way, you know, we're going to be writing about this. Do you want to have a chat off the record, you know, just to explain your point of view and we can explain ours in terms of why we want to focus on this, why we think it's a questionable practice. Um, And also to that key question, to figure out how much they get paid. I think one or two gave us 10-minute chats. Um, But most were actually unapologetic about promoting this content. And I think that probably speaks to the very precise way that the likes of Shell and BP have targeted the sorts of people who would be inclined to promote their activity um, and would, you know, buy into the whole their whole narrative, which tends to revolve, as the piece says, around green innovation, trying to um, argue the case that fossil fuel giants are actually helping towards the green transition, which is um, actually massively out of kilter with what they're investing in. One of the things that we've seen in other industries like fast fashion is that sometimes when influencers get invited to do a piece of propaganda, really, a whitewashing piece of content, that there can be a bit of a backlash. We saw that when Sheen invited some TikTokers uh, to China to have a look around their information center. There was actually a lot of criticism online. Did you ever get a sense that there was a kind of backlash or critical response to this content? Or did did people just sort of accept it at face value? Out of the maybe you know, 120, 150 examples of influencers that we found, we maybe found half a dozen where I'd say there was significant backlash to their posts. Like we're talking maybe 20 responses on a, on a popular post um, saying, you know, why are you working with these companies? So actually the overwhelming majority, and this really did shock me actually, that the There is a great amount of climate consciousness now um, in the UK and in America where a lot of the ads were. Um, But that doesn't seem to have seeped through to all aspects of society. And again, I think this probably is probably quite telling 
in terms of the sort of people that Shell targeted. So we saw the fact that these individuals tended to be on the sort of peripheries of environmentalism, um, the sort of people who liked to state their environmental credentials, liked to you know be quite positive about the climate movement and the need to transition to green energy. But actually, it seems as though they don't have that much environmental substance to them because they were willing to promote these fossil fuel firms. And that, you know, it seems to have converted in terms of the the sort of followers that these people are attracting to their accounts, which um, the likes of Shell and BP probably see as um, fertile territory, the sort of soft, um, disengaged body of of individuals in society who they can turn towards their cause because um, they're not quite so rooted in the green agenda as more activist parts of society are. What were the demographics that were being targeted here in terms of the audience? So with Sheen, it kind of blows up in their face because they're targeting very socially conscious Zoomers who weren't going to swallow it, even if they do buy fast fashion. But who were the target audience here? Who who were Shell and BP trying to reach? It's interesting, actually. So we found a web page from uh, Edelman, which is one of Shell's principal PR agencies. It was boasting about a campaign that it had run um, with an explorer and um, testing biofuels um, uh, in the North and South Poles. Um, and it explicitly stated that it wanted the campaign to target millennials. And we saw this with leaked documents from BP in 2020 as well, is that they are coming after young people. They, which surprised me, actually. I thought, probably like you, that there would just be no way of converting that demographic to be sympathetic towards these companies. But either through ignorance or blind optimism or the sheer amounts of money that these companies are willing to throw at this PR project. Yeah, they they think that they can convert young people to the cause. Maybe not Gen Zers, but millennials they're certainly seeing as a as a core potential uh, route of support for them. That was Sam Bright speaking to me earlier today. And if you want to read more from Sam's piece, as we said, it's up on navaromedia.com and the link to it is in the YouTube description below. Also in the YouTube description is another link that I want to talk about in a moment. But first, this. The point of the media is to get to the facts. It's to get to the truth. That's the point. If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Our press corps is a joke. Why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard? The story in the media is already written. There is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media, that is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. You know, we've got this huge media machine which works against any kind of politics of hope. They are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access the public at large. Very many millions of people want a society in which people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, and there's very little political voice for that. Our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge. They don't like Navarra media. We're still there and there's still the embryo of a successful left populist project. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right, and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analysing their fucking dancing.
As you just saw, this show and our entire operation here at Navarra Media is funded by you. So a massive thank you for supporting us. If you haven't already, then head to navaramedia.com slash support. The link is in the description too. As though things weren't busy enough down here on Earth, we've now got to start worrying about what's going on above our heads. A US congressional hearing has taken place, looking into what the federal government knows about UAPs. That's unidentified anomalous phenomena, which used to be called UFOs. And it was in that hearing that this happened. You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in public setting. Um, okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. <laughs> um, if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. And was this documentary evidence, this video, photos, eyewitness? Like, how would that be determined? The specific documentation I would have to talk to you in a skiff about. Gotcha. Yeah. Human or non-human biologics have never been called that before. So, during that congressional hearing, UFO whistleblower David Grush was on the record in saying that the US government is in possession of the bodies of aliens. And though he wouldn't confirm it publicly, he suggested contact had been made with intelligent extraterrestrial life. That's a lot to learn from one clip. But it's not the only thing we learned. The expression skiff came up a few times, and we'll hear it again. It stands for Secure Contained Information Facility. It's basically a pre-vetted secure room where witnesses can safely disclose highly classified information to congressmen. Now, the penalty for lying to Congress under oath is up to five years in prison. Yet, former U.S. Air Force officer and Pentagon employee David Grush was prepared to repeat the claims he made to the media last month. So it seems that there are just a few options. Either he's a wild fantasist who truly believes his own claims, or he's a reckless fame hound. Or maybe he's someone telling the truth. Grush was speaking under federal whistleblower protections, which protect him from being prosecuted for disclosing state secrets. What they don't protect him from is retaliation, a topic that also came up. Have you faced any retaliation or reprisals for any of your testimony or anything on these lines? Yeah, uh, I have to be careful what I say in detail because there is an open uh, whistleblower reprisal investigation on my behalf, and I don't want to compromise that investigation by providing anything that may uh, help provide somebody information. But it was very brutal and uh, very unfortunate, some of the tactics they used to um, hurt me both professionally and, and personally, to be quite frank. yeah, It's very unfortunate. As they say, when you're over the target, that's when they do the most... Firing at you. Do you have any personal knowledge of people who have been harmed or injured in efforts to cover up or conceal these extraterrestrial technology? Yes. Personally, have you heard? Have anyone been murdered that you would think that you know of or have heard of? I guess I have to be careful asking that question. I directed people with that knowledge to the appropriate authorities. Maybe in a um, if we could get it get in a um, 
confidential area skiff we could talk about that but unfortunately um, we were denied access to the skiff and that's very unfortunate in this in this scenario no skiff no protection from retaliation what do they have to hide besides grush there were two other witnesses giving testimony David Fravor is a retired Navy pilot and was in the jet that encountered these objects off the Southern California coast in 2006. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, that thing, dude. That's not our LNS though, is it? It's not. That is our LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. Ryan Graves, a retired Air Force pilot, also appeared as a witness. You'll see him and Fravo in this next clip that I'm going to show you. It's a good example of how the hearing often had a jarring, militaristic tone to it. And the congressmen and women involved were mostly Republicans with an axe to grind over what they see as federal government overreach. Though I should say that AOC appeared on the panel too. AOC with the UAPs. But there was one moment where a familiar shoot now, ask questions later approach took over. Um, so when we think about traditional adversaries and uh, both us uh, towards them and them towards us, you know, we probe uh, their capabilities. We look for weaknesses uh, and we, we collect that data, that reconnaissance for in the, in the event we need it in the future. Um, for each of you, yes or no question, based off of your own experience or the data that you've been privy to, is there any indication that these UAPs could be uh, essentially uh, collecting reconnaissance information? Mr. Graves? Yes. Mr. Grush? Fair assessment. Yeah. Mr. That's Fravor? Very possible. Again, in the national security vein, uh, is it possible that these UAPs would be probing our capabilities? Yes or no, Mr. Graves? Yes. Grush? Yes. Fravor? Definitely. Is it possible that these UAPs are testing for vulnerabilities in our current systems? Yes. Yes. Possible. Do you feel, based off of your experience and the information that you've been privy to, that these UAPs provide an existential threat to the national security of the United States? Mr. Graves? Potentially. Yes, sir, potentially. Uh, same answer, potentially. Yeah, I'd say Favorite. definitely, potentially. Mr. Graves and Fravor, you know, in the event that your encounters had become hostile, would you have would have would you have had the capability to defend yourself, your crew, your aircraft? Absolutely not, sir. No. Is based off of the information that you've been privy to, is there any indication that these UAPs are interested in our nuclear technology and capabilities? Yes. By external observation, sure, that could be a fair assessment, yeah. Yes. I mean, 
could an advanced species capable of traveling across galaxies in technology we can't understand really be interested in our nukes? Well, I guess so. Um, That congressman, by the way, is this guy. Congressman Andy Ogles of Tennessee, who posted this Christmas card to social media earlier in his political career. I love it when politicians have names that are full sentences like Andy Ogles, Mike Gapes, just such a great line in names. The congressional hearings and the sudden renewed interest in UFOs raises a lot of questions. Like, why is it always America? This is a map of recorded UFO sightings between 1906 and 2014. As you can see, the United States is the global hotspot for flying saucers. And the aliens seem pretty respectful of the Canadian and Mexican borders. UFO sightings are almost entirely an Anglophone phenomenon. The aliens have no interest in stopping by, I don't know, the pyramids of Giza, you know, despite having built them. The truth is out there. The second most visited country seems to be the UK, glowing like a little fairy light there. And maybe it suggests that aliens only speak English. Or maybe it suggests that UFO sightings reflect the anxieties of the world's foremost military power and not actual contact with alien life. Physicist Brian Cox watched the hearings too and posted this verdict. I keep being asked what I make of the UFO thing in Congress yesterday, so here it is. I watched a few clips and saw some people who seem to believe stuff seeing extraordinary things without presenting extraordinary evidence. Therefore, I have nothing more to say other than it would be great if true. It would take a bit of the pressure off of our civilization if we weren't the only means within the Milky Way by which the universe understands itself. Sadly, as of today, I still feel that pressure. So perhaps we focus on not messing our world up rather than hoping that, to paraphrase Sagan, someone will float down to save us from ourselves. So Mike, this kind of sounds like the question you'd get asked at 4am at the afters, but what do you think? Are aliens out there? (laughs) I'm honestly one of those that's so dismissive of this stuff, it's unbelievable. (laughs) To the point of being slightly condescending, I'm just like... Guys, are we really talking about aliens? You know, there's no, no amount of pints I would drink when I'm out with friends will com- be able to convince me that aliens are real. I just, it's always the Americans, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just always them. Just a unique bunch of people, honestly. I, I am so dismissive of alien talk. Although I had a friend of mine who once said that taking the vaccine would turn me into an alien. So maybe I'm an alien. Who knows? <laughs> Oh my God, that is such a double bluff, isn't it? Because you're saying, I don't believe in aliens, but someone said I was an alien. Whoa, isn't that ridiculous? If I was a smart alien, that's what I would say. I think that is it for the show. Thanks, Mike, for joining me tonight. I'll leave you to return to your home planet. (laughs) I will be back. (laughs) E.T. went home and then decided he likes it better here in South London. And thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back on Monday for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.